1: Hey, welcome, everybody. It's the Bauer and Rose podcast brought to you by JustTheNews.com. And since it's just the news, we're not going to waste time talking about nothing. Gary, how are you? Hey,
0: Tom, I'm I'm great. I'm I'm glad we this is our isn't this our first official podcast? It
1: is our first official podcast. We're not sure we're going to we're not sure we're going to make it past the pike, depending on how well we do. So let's get straight into it.
0: Midterms I mean, coming I'm just up. Getting ready to say, I'm. I'm glad we could do the show before Armageddon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Armageddon followed, of course, by a uh, by another weekend on the Delaware Beach. I I want to get in. I, obviously, we want to talk about the midterms coming up in a couple of weeks. But I had a um, one of those funny little bugs in my ear over the past couple of days, and I wanted to run this past you to get some kind of a some kind of a reaction. And that has to do with this notion that we don't seem to be responding to as effectively as we could or should. And that is the notion that somehow we, Republicans, conservatives, pro-life people, are a quote-unquote threat to democracy. We're not a threat to democracy. We're a threat to Democrats. That's the point. And they're able to conflate right democracy with their Uh, incredibly left-wing policies. That's how we need to respond, I think, each time they raise this ugly specter. Anyone that opposes them is opposed to democracy, right? Anyone that opposes their far-left policies, transgendering our kids, then we're the ones that are opposed to democracy. This, I think, Gary demonstrates better than most anything else the arrogance of the left and the democrat party this notion that they are the the sole arbiters of what we're allowed to discuss what we're allowed to implement what kind of democracy would we have if the policies that you and i want are forbidden to even be spoken about let alone implemented how are we supposed to live together in a country where half of us are demonized by the side with all the power of the state
0: yeah, you know, Tom, our friends over at Fox News, uh, have been running this, um, uh, news segment in the evening news and on Brett Baer's show in, in which they highlight a Republican and a Democrat in Congress who are working together on some issue to show that in, you know, deeply divided Washington, it's still possible for uh, <laughs> liberals and conservatives to work together. It it is one of the most irritating segments I've ever seen in my life. It's not a deeply, I mean, first of all, the insinuation is that the, the division in America is only in Washington, D.C. In fact, the division in America is a very real division among the leftist elites that control the Democrat Party and the instincts of normal Americans all over the country. And so on issue after issue, uh, they, they do want to silence us. They do see us as a threat to their agenda. There isn't any middle ground. I mean, they want abortion in all nine months of the pregnancy. And if we argue with them about that, we're women haters and a threat to democracy. They obviously want open borders. I don't care what kind of rhetoric they use. They obviously want open borders or the borders wouldn't be open. You could just go down one issue after another. And, Tom, since you raised this, you really hit on one of my pet peeves because I don't think the Republican Party is accurately responding to these constant charges that we are semi-fascists, a threat to democracy, all the other things that are being said you know tom I, I i hate to admit it i'm a am a lawyer by training i went to georgetown law school so i guess uh,
1: well we've just lost half our audience
0: <laughs> yes yeah and i'll be going soon so <laughs> um so when, when there's a car accident between two automobiles and the police show up And one guy is screaming at the top of his lungs. He's saying, that guy cut me off. And then when I tried to swerve, he took his car in my direction. It was unbelievable. And the other guy stands over by his car, just shaking his head at these unbelievable lies that the other guy's telling. If that dispute goes to court, the jury is allowed to consider the reaction of the two parties in the wreck to the wreck. And if one guy is screaming that he was wrong and that he was mistreated and that he was actually assaulted by the other guy's car, and the other guy is listening to this and thinking, oh, this is so insane, this is so ridiculous, nobody will ever believe it, so I'm just going to stand here and let him scream all he wants, the jury can legitimately assume that the guy who is emotionally upset is the person that's telling the truth and the guy that's just standing there nonchalantly. Actually did those things he's being accused of. And I feel like that's what in too many cases the Republican establishment is doing. They don't want to get diverted from the economy, from inflation, from the other issues, all important issues. But we can be on those issues and also point out that the real threat to Americans, America's constitutional republic are not small government conservatives. It's the it's the Democrat Party, their their allies and social media that are censoring, that are attempting to close down dissent every place. The left's in control, whether it's the universities, social media or whatever, they always cancel other people. They always try to shut down debate and they always label dissent as being evil and something that must not be said.
1: I mean, one thing we all should learn, remember that book, What Everyone Needs to Know They Ought to Learn in Kindergarten or by Kindergarten? Right. What I think everybody needs to learn early in life is that we should believe people who say what they think and tell us what they want. That's, that's the issue here. When law enforcement becomes an arm of one political party, we're living in a police state. That's precisely what the left is now celebrating. The arrests of these these, these pro-life uh, hymn singers out in front of uh, abortion clinics, now categorized as domestic terrorists. I mean, we know that... Um, The crushing, I mean, the weight of state media, the state security service, um, and the Department of Justice used to harass, to humiliate, to isolate, to incarcerate political opponents, all to maintain this increasingly corrupt regime. Here's my worry, and I'll bounce this off you. My worry is that we do extremely well in the midterms. We clean up in the House, we take control of the Senate, and then we blow it.
0: Wow, Tom. You're reading my mind. I mean, look—it's not as if it hasn't happened before.
1: I was going to say, blow it again.
0: Yes, there, you, there you go. I mean, we've we've been through this cycle many, many times. Where you know, we we don't put out a real agenda for what we're going to do. I know we've we say we've got one now, but it's just asserting things like, you know, they want an open border. Well, we'll secure the border. Okay, but well, what are you going to do to secure the border? Um, so you can just go on down the list. We get infected with the idea that there's a whole bunch of things we shouldn't talk about because it'll play into the other side's hands. What plays into the other side's hands, Tom, is that we get in and we don't actually do what we say we're going to do. And that in modern day America, that's the only thing that matters. People are so cynical they're so sick and tired of electing one party and then the other party, and they never do what was promised, that if we do, if we're fortunate enough to win back the House, get 52 votes in the Senate, and we don't actually do what we said we're going to do, then good luck in 2024. Uh, by, by the way, Tom, I... um I can hear it now. I, I can hear what the excuse is going to be. Because one thing that uh, McCarthy, Speaker uh, major, uh, Republican leader in the House, McCarthy has said is that if we get the House and Senate, we're going to conduct investigations. We're going to subpoena people. You know, we're going to hold them in contempt of Congress if they don't show up. We're going to do all. Of it. Will we, or will we quickly succumb to what the media narrative will be, which is? What has that got to do about with how average Americans are living? How is holding these hearings, investigating Hunter Biden, going to get inflation down? How is you know going after the corruption that is all over Washington and D.C. going to do anything about you know making our economy stronger? We got to stop listening to the media that hates us. We got to stop internalizing the narrative of the Democrat Party and the woke left, and we've got to start fighting. As hard as the left fights us. And I am not convinced we've got it in us. No,
1: I, look, I totally agree. I mean, a very, very bad habit of Republicans, of conservatives, particularly elected officials, is, I think I'm quoting Gary Bauer here now, this, this desperation to be affirmed by the dominant culture, which is you know, typically peopled by folks that hate our guts, the media, Hollywood, big education, um, uh, you know, Democrats in Congress, our neighbors, uh, everything we stand for, they oppose, they want the end of, and, uh, you know, it's like the Kanye West thing. He's this huge celebrity with some good ideas and some terrible ideas, frankly. Um, but we are so desperate to be affirmed, to be liked, to be respected, to be accepted by the dominant culture that we follow their narrative. Just all the time we follow it to the point where it's utterly self-destructive.
0: Uh, you know, Tom, so that's, that's a I think, a, a critique we both agree on about the Republican Party and its leadership and certainly its donor class who, you know, they don't want to rock the boat. They, they don't want to have their cocktail parties at the Kennedy Center or in Manhattan interrupted or have to defend people that they, you know, would try to keep out of the country club. You know, we know that narrative has been there for a long, long time. But I, I even worry about some of the folks that uh, are our voters. Now, I think a lot more conservatives get it today than used to get it. But I, I find there's still a group of conservatives, and, and I would say this as a conservative Christian. I think there's a, still a group of Christians that desperately yearn for a return to the politics of the 1950s. And, or 80s. Say, or, yeah, or, or 80s, right. Uh, yeah, I I just want to get back to I just want to get back to normal. You know, guess what folks? This is the new normal. I, I you, you know, you know what I think about Ronald Reagan I and mean, Ronald Reagan defined my entire political life and politics has been a major part of everything I've done in my life. I heard along with a lot of other people that speech Ronald Reagan gave in 1964 uh called a time for choosing. And uh, I turned to my dad and said, hey, dad, this movie actor is going to be president of the United States someday, and I'm going to work for him in the White House. And my dad said, Gary, you're nuts. Uh, that doesn't mean he was wrong, by the way. Right. No, that's that's absolutely true. <laughs>
1: you can work for Reagan and still be Gary Bauer, the nutcase.
0: Yes. No, absolutely. Some people, you know, have said that. In fact, some people in my own home. <laughs> but um, so I.
1: You know I what? Love- Before you hit the next thought, which I'm sure will be a great one. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Bower and Rose podcast on justthenews.com. Welcome back, everybody. Bower and Rose podcast, justthenews.com. I interrupted Gary, one of my favorite things to do. Who uh, was about to make an excellent point. If you can remember what the point was, fire away.
0: Yes, I was getting ready to say that, uh, you know, I worked for Ronald Reagan for eight years, best eight years of my life. Um, and I'll run into a lot of people that I worked with in the Reagan administration but also people today that were very young during that administration but remember the Reagan years, and they'll say, Gary, who's the next Ronald Reagan? You know, Trump may not run again, and uh, but who's the next Ronald Reagan? Because if we can come up with the next Ronald Reagan, we're going to win and be in for the next eight years, and then his vice president will be in for another eight years and so forth. And my response to that is, if we had another Ronald Reagan, somebody with Ronald Reagan's demeanor, we probably would not win the election. I I mean, I could argue that Mitt Romney, not his policies and his weakness, but that Mitt Romney's demeanor is a lot like Ronald Reagan. Mitt Romney's sort of a nice guy. You know, when he talks, he's sort of, you know— uh you, you could you could imagine him babysitting for your kids or maybe handling your finances and you know he probably in that sense is trustworthy
1: you wouldn't want uh, him taking care of your dog though
0: yeah there you go so Re- Re- i mean reagan he was everybody's grandfather but that doesn't work if you're in a battle in which one side is not just going to defeat you at the ballot box but where one side is going to get the country and turn that country into something unrecognizable. You, you remember this, uh, Tom, when, when Trump uh, was running for the nomination and all the conventional wisdom was, no way he would ever get it. The polling was showing that if you asked Republicans what was the one word they would come up with to describe their party, and they would say, betrayed. They felt betrayed by the Republican Party because it wasn't fighting hard enough for the things that they believed in, the re- voters that put the Republican Party and believed in. So, um, yeah, it would be great to have Ronald Reagan again or Dwight David Eisenhower or whatever. Whoever runs on the Republican ticket has got to be somebody that can take a punch and throw a punch and not have a moral crisis over the fact that they're in a fight.
1: Right. Don't, don't listen to me. Don't listen to Bauer. Listen to them. Listen to Liz Cheney, who says repeatedly that Donald Trump is the greatest threat to the future of our country. Not social collapse, not civilizational decline, not China, not inflation, not open borders. Donald Trump. I mean, today, they all claim that the uh, allegedly super-secret classified documents uh, taken to Mar-a-Lago disqualify him. They say January 6th disqualifies him. But remember, and you, I was in the White House for four years. <laughs> On January 5th, it was something else that disqualif- disqualified him. On January 4th, it was something else. If people are honest, they're going to recognize that this has been their position, hatred of Trump, since the day he came down that escalator. But despite all his faults, and he like the rest of us, except for you, Bauer, um, might have some faults. Has, uh, <laughs> has, has Does that justify or demand that the country literally be ripped apart by civil conflict? I, I mean, our country, I think by any measure, was far better off with him, warts and all, and there were plenty of warts, much better off. The economy was strong. The border was secure. Putin was in a box. Iran was in a box. NATO was strengthened and revitalized. We were finally negotiating favorable trade deals. Uh, markets kept breaking record after record. China was was finally exposed for the um, malevolent. Now I sound like Joe Biden, the malevolent actor we've we've known for a long time that that they were. There was no inflation. Gas cost two dollars and seventeen cents. Unemployment. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Our streets were safe. A record low uh, black and Hispanic unemployment. And like him or not, and I get that people don't like his demeanor. I get that. About a hundred million Americans saw enough of that to say that they were with him.
0: Well, y- yes, that's right. Look, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, Trump appointed me to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Liberty.
1: You're welcome. Uh, You're, welcome. That, You're welcome.
0: You're uh, welcome. I, I think there was some uh, help from. Uh, uh the vice president's office as well
1: by the way i you know the checks have stopped <laughs> i thought we had aggr- I thought we'd agreed on and you were paid a walloping what Nothing. that would be zero
0: yeah that would be zero uh i'm being audited now <laughs> <laughs> so um Yes. So I look. I and I had an opportunity, particularly in the early. You remember this, Tom? This might shock people. In the shock people in the in the beginning of the Trump administration, he would leave the door to the Oval Office open. And and when he was in there working. Uh, If you if you walked past the Oval Office and he saw you, he would go, "Hey, Bob, come on in. What's going on?" It's funny he never did that with me. (laughs) Well, he he did it with me a couple of times, and and uh, once I went in with a group of people to commend him on what he was doing on Israel, and after they had they selected me for uh, to be their spokesman, and when I was finished, he said to me, "Gary, that uh, that was wonderful. That's let me ask you something." Could, would you mind going out on the front lawn there with the the rest of these uh, folks and and uh, just brief the media on on what you just talked to me about on on our policy with Israel? And I'm l- looking around the room and the and the staff and the press people are, are saying, uh, you know. And I said, Mr. President, that's that's very nice of you to trust me to do that, but I believe you have. People whose job it is to that. Oh, Gary, come on! You've done this before. Besides, we haven't thrown him any red meat today. He said, referring to the reporters. So I find myself out on the lawn of the White House briefing the reporters. That was not, you know, the normal way things were done. But Tom, and you went through the litany of the things people saw in Trump, and you, I, I, I don't remember all of them that you said, but the one to me that really jumps out. There's a lot of them, but the one that really jumps out at me is Trump made the Republican Party a working-class, middle-class party. And he did it naturally. And it's it's bizarre that the Manhattan billionaire understood how to talk to middle-class and working-class people than a lot of other people in the Republican Party that came from working-class and middle-class backgrounds. And we see today, and it's driving the Democrats nuts that working class Americans of all races, particularly uh, white working class, but also Hispanic working class, and there's some evidence that black working class, particularly black working class men, are gravitating toward the Republican Party, largely because they liked what they saw about Donald Trump. And you'll remember in, in his acceptance speech, Tom, uh, that he started talking about the, the, the global trade deals that we made with China. And as a result of those trade deals, main streets all over America got boarded up, and those communities failed, while in Washington, D.C., people in both parties got richer and richer. And there was a former president on the podium, George Bush, who reportedly turned to the person next to him and said, this is some strange fill in the blank when that sentence was spoken by the president.
1: Right. I mean, there was our our um, our trade policy was was long, long overdue. But and this is where you and I might disagree, but it came too late. Here's the issue. And the numbers just came out from the Commerce Department. David Goldman has a great column at Asia Times. Uh, Our tariff policy vis-a-vis China Uh, long overdue and welcome, isn't working. Our imports from China are up 30%. Now, they would have been up, as Goldman points out, they would have been up 70% had we not imposed the tariffs. But his point is, our industrial infrastructure our manufacturing capacity is wiped out it's gone the reason that imports from china are up is because we don't have the capacity we don't even have the ability anymore to produce the things that were normally and best practice management from the us i mean that's uh, uh, that's an issue that is an existential threat to the united states all this talk about you know china stealing everything from us well that used to be true But it's not necessarily true anymore because they've leapfrogged us in a lot of ways in robotics, in A.I., in in very high end manufacturing. We need them more than they need us, which is why it's time for us to begin to talk very. Look, I'm a a capitalist. I'm a free market guy. But national security comes first. I'm sorry. National security comes first. That's why we've got to have. Uh, a discussion at least of a serious industrial policy that's going to deal with some of these these very very dangerous uh, shortcomings and failures on our end and i don't think we pushed that hard enough we got the debate going which is great bob Leis- bob lightheiser our our uh, special trade representative our ustr was fantastic we got a you know a much better usmca deal the old nafta deal but uh uh, our problems are a lot deeper and more fundamental than simply tariffs. Tariffs are a way to start, but them alone, that ain't gonna get it done.
0: Uh, Tom, we don't disagree that much. I, and of course, the words industrial policy will drive our friends over at the Wall Street Journal absolutely berserk. But, uh, we've, I, I guess what I would say, and, and I think you were saying it, but let me say it more directly. We have to rebuild a manufacturing base in the United States, or we're doomed. In my view, you can't be a great nation with worldwide responsibilities if we can't make things. You can't be a country whose economy is defined by tweeting each other, going on social media, you know, buying, uh, selling each other Starbucks, and uh, you know, you can't just have a service economy. You've got to be able to make things. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's making things among other things like ships and planes and all the rest of the things that define a great nation. You know, we, we need a massive defense build up to protect ourselves. And I'm not sure we've got the manufacturing base even for. No, that. we don't. Obviously,
1: we can clearly see this in terms of uh, the amount of our inventory, precision weapons, standoff weapons, um, Uh, high Mars, the high altitude uh, artillery rocket systems that we're sending to Ukraine. Um, Look, we have this notion on the right, uh, the neocons and the Cato Institute people who are great people, that this is something we've never done before, industrial policy. Well, that's baloney. What about the moonshot? What about the interstate highway system? What about World War Two. What about Star Wars? That was industrial policy, and we benefited massively from it. We well,
0: you know, Tom, it's not completely on target, but I was reminded the other day. You know that we announced this program to build these uh, uh, nuclear submarines, each of which would be outfitted with uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles with multiple warheads, and and we wanted to build enough of them that they would be always a group out under the ocean in various places where our enemies couldn't possibly find them. And thus it was a deterrent to somebody making the mistake of launching a first strike on us, because even if they caught all of our land-based missiles in their silos, we would still have a more than enough power. So in a fairly protracted period of time, we built dozens of those submarines, which, by the way, we we named each one of them after an American hero that was responsible for our freedom, like the USS George Washington and the USS Teddy Roosevelt, right. and, and on and on it goes. And in its own way, that was an industrial policy. Of course. I don't even know whether we could build. That many nuclear submarines in the, in the same period of time we were able to do that, whatever that was 30 years ago.
1: You know, and it's, it, it's interesting. It reminds me, I'm just reading this book now about the Yom Kippur War in 1973. In 1973, um, after the Yom Kippur War, you know, Israelis were totally taken by surprise. Um, the Soviets had supplied Egypt with brand new technology that uh, combated American technology that the Israelis were using. The Israeli Air Force was nearly wiped out. The Israeli Tank Corps was nearly wiped out. when so- everyone had assumed the Soviets had won the arms race because they were more sophisticated. Well, what began under Richard Nixon and uh, continued with credit to credit to Jimmy Carter and, and, and Ronald Reagan was a massive investment in high-tech precision weaponry so that within nine years in 1982 when the israelis destroyed the syrian air force in the baka valley turkey shoot it had completely turned around and that was nine years but that was tens of billions of dollars worth of investment so people who say it is too late they're also wrong but we got to get off the ball and uh we also need to take another break you are listening to the bower and rose podcast on justthenews.com <music> Welcome back. We were uh, uh, talking with Bauer. Actually, I was talking. Michael Anton, you know him. He's um, uh, he had a great piece in the Claremont Review. I'm sure you probably read it um, talking about why the left. And let's be honest, it's white liberals that absolutely despise Trump. I mean, blacks might not like him, but they don't hate him to the extent that these rich white liberals do. This was uh, Anton's point. As much as they hate Trump, and obviously they do hate Trump, their opposition isn't really about Trump alone. They can't allow Trump back because they can't allow the Trump agenda back. The establishment can't allow these forces, that's you and me, in other words, to ever be in a position where our policies and interests can be put into practice. That's a bridge too far for them. They can't allow it, which is the ultimate irony, right? They scream the loudest about democracy. They're the ones working the hardest to prevent half the country from electing the people they want to elect.
0: Yeah, Tom, that, look, that's really key. I mean, you and I are, you know, for better or worse, and we've been in sort of leadership positions over the years, and we try to speak for that half of America. But But the hatred here... Even though you and I will feel it and have felt it over the years, and Trump felt it uh, over the years he was in office, the, the the hatred is actually aimed at Middle America, its values, uh, the God it believes in, the values it wants to to teach uh, its children. That's what the left is at war at uh, at war with. And the thought that middle America could have elected officials that actually fought for them, that fought for the idea that the children in families are under the tutelage of parents, not under the the ownership of some left-wing teacher union member at the school, that uh, patriotism is a normal and good thing, and our children should be taught to love the history of our country. Uh, all these things drive the left absolutely crazy when they say they want to transform America, when they call middle America uh, white supremacists and uh, Christian nationalists and all these other pejorative terms they're just they're, this is all the attack on normalcy it 's on what everyday Americans that quite frankly keep the country running. I mean, we could do without a lot of things that are made in high-tech centers, but we couldn't do without the farmers and the truck drivers and the manufacturing workers that we still have. And all the people that make the trains run on time and do all the jobs that these highfalutin graduates of, you know, the, the best universities wouldn't touch, touch with a 10-foot pole. So there is a deep, deep split in America between uh, the normalcy of middle America and the insanity, increasing insanity of the political and cultural left in this country. And I do not believe the two can exist in the same country. First. I mean,
1: if you think about it, um, and I spent four years in the White House Trump's policies weren't even that radical. I mean, they were far less radical than Obama, not to mention Joe Biden. There were no radical policy departures, none that that caused any harm anyway. His core agenda, our core agenda, was incredibly mainstream. Secure borders, safe streets, economic growth, better trade deals. Uh, standing up to our enemies and standing with our friends, if anything, particularly in the early days, and he admits this himself, the president admits this himself, in the early days, if anything, he went too far in the direction of the elites.
0: Yeah, which makes me wonder, Tom, and it's it's probably a a subject for another podcast if we survive after this first one which is uh, if he ended up running again and winning again
1: gary bauer ladies and gentlemen his glass is always eleven twelfths empty
0: what what glass uh, <laughs> um, yeah but uh, how you know he the, his challenge will probably be finding the personnel to uh, Bingo! Get the administration working because so many of the people with experience, so many of the people with experience in government are people that have already been tainted by what you have to do in this town to advance in government. So it would be, it no doubt would be quite a challenge. He
1: was asked. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was Hannity a couple of weeks back. he probably saw it. Uh, if there's one thing, Mr. President, that uh, you would have to do over again, uh, what would it be? And his answer was, people, people, people. Mm.
0: That, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? It
1: does, and it also sums it up for this version of the Bower and Rose podcast. Keep your, I was going to say radio dial, but these aren't radio dials anymore. <laughs> keep whatever it is. <laughs> keep whatever it is. <laughs> the other Bower and Rose. Right, keep whatever it is, doing whatever it is it is is, and we'll be back in a couple of days with uh, Episode two of the Bower and Rose podcast right here on justthenews.com.